Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Chad Duncan. We have found the dog to match your personality. And I'm thinking, the dog's going to be high maintenance, socially awkward, and obsessed with my wife's boobies? That and more. But before that, I'm going to announce all the upcoming Risk Live shows at the end of this episode. But I wanted to start here by reminding you that on February 24th, this Wednesday, we are back at the Bell House in Brooklyn. That's going to be a huge show. And we have brand new tour dates to announce. On May 21st, we're in Minneapolis. The theme that night is Repugnant. On June 25th, we're in St. Louis, Missouri, for the first time ever. The theme that night is Worried. If you want to know how to submit a pitch, just go to the submissions page at risk-show.com. Also, you probably want to get a little bit more sexy stuff happening in your life. Who doesn't? Well, at adamandeve.com, they've got a lot more (laughs) to give you. Listen, I have a friend who sticks things up straight guys' butts for a living, and she says that the rude boy is the most popular toy ever, that everyone loves it. I know for women, there's the wet wabbit, very popular. I love Japanese clover nipple clamps. There's all kinds of sexy underwear there. Pure silicone lube, that's P-J-U-R. You can't do better than that. And listen, with our deal with Adam and Eve, you get 10 free gifts. You get a sexy surprise for her, a specially selected toy for him, and third, a little something you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult DVDs. Number 10 is free shipping on the entire order. So all you have to do to get your 10 free gifts is go to adamandeve.com, select any one item, and enter the offer code RISK at the checkout. You'll get all 10 free gifts. You go to adamandeve.com today. Just use the offer code RISK. That's RISK at adamandeve.com. Now here's the show. kids this is risk the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share i'm kevin allison this is herbie hancock behind me now and we're calling today's episode perception the whole idea that you think you are looking at reality but in fact you're only ever looking at a projection that you have framed and focused And not only that, but any perception, whether it's a conscious thought or an unconscious sort of sensation rumbling through you, a mood, it might seem real as hell. But later that same day, it won't even be there anymore. And as always, we have a bunch of stories today, beautiful, sad, surprising, funny, that go to show that maybe, just maybe... A new way to see what you're seeing could come about in the blink of an eye. Now, every now and then, I like to remind everyone just how preciously important it is to us that you share with friends and family and people on your Facebook feed and on your Twitter feed and whatever, how much you love this show. The thing that has always meant the most to us is people sharing risk with other people. If a friend doesn't know how to download a podcast, show them how. And we love hearing people's comments about how the stories affected them. There's the comments on the listen pages at risk-show.com where you'll also find the tables of contents of all the storytellers and the musicians featured on the show. But also, there's Facebook and Twitter where you can share links to any of those listen pages. Another thing is we understand that a lot of people don't get around 
to a certain episode until a certain time. If you want to comment on a story that's from six years ago, we still want to hear it. And so do the storytellers and people who also care about those stories. So talk it up, folks, and pay close attention to when we might be coming to your town as well. Now, in a little bit, we're going to hear from the brilliant Ray Christian, who is one of our favorites. He does all kinds of storytelling in the Carborough, Chapel Hill, Raleigh, Durham area. But before that, we're going to feature a story from a fan who wrote in to us when we asked for pitches for our recent Dallas show. He was a storytelling virgin. <laughs> you sure can't tell that from this recording. Here he is now. This is Chad Duncan with a story we call Doing Good. I don't know how it came about, but I realized I was born with this innate ability to read people in seconds. I learned this in 1997 when I was a special education teacher. I could walk by classrooms, and in that that narrow passage, that little window that's right there, I could spot a student who was in distress. I've gone inside and talked to the teacher and said, could I speak to this child outside? And when they would come out and they learned that they weren't in trouble and I noticed something about them, they opened up. And their stories were astonishing. One guy had just learned, he and his girlfriend that morning had taken a pregnancy test and he was about to be a father. And other stories were... Their mom's boyfriend had been put in jail that night. And the worst stories were that the boyfriend had gotten out of jail. And it it, it was amazing to me, and I'm describing to Jennifer, my wife, that I can look at people and I could see exactly that something was wrong. And so I'm, I'm sitting in our sectional, and I said, baby, I don't know what it is. It's like Pigpen from, from the Charlie Brown cartoon. I can see that, that dust cloud around him, but it's, it's emotions. It's like there's distress. And she says, if you're so good at reading people, how come you haven't noticed I've been pissed off at you the past two days? <laughs> and I'm like, baby, I, I don't know. Maybe this, maybe this couch has some, some lead shielding or the, the TV's a mic. I don't know, baby. And she just kind of gave me that wink. I knew she was pissed off at me because... Ladies, you have those panties you put on, and, and, and you know, it's, it's like a signal flare. It's not happening. To me, I call them kryptonite panties because uh, there's no man to steal that night. So when I get back in the classroom, not only can I just look at the students and tell that something's wrong, but I also could help them regain the rest of their day. I could build them back up. And so... What would, what would be so amazing is these students, because of whatever had just happened, they were afraid that their, their mom was going to get called, that they were going to be arrested, suspended, or their probation officer would be called, that I would let them know, it's okay, you're all right, you're with me, we're, we're going to make it through this day, because we still had six hours to go. So putting them back together Once I could see that they were working, I would go by them and I would say, you're doing good. And it was in those those moments that when I could encourage them and I could build them back up, that truly filled my heart. Well, it was one day in 2011, February 2011, I had pulled out my Blackberry. Does that say 2011 Blackberry? (laughs) And I'm looking at the screen, and, and the screen is it's smeared. And being a special ed teacher, looking down 
that's a bad idea. So I immediately looked back up and I realized there was a crisis and I needed to get, get, get my attention back to them. So I put it back in my pocket and we averted that crisis. Well, later that night, I pulled my phone back out of my pocket and I looked down at it. And the screen was still smeared. And so I said, Jennifer, my new Blackberry, it's, it's messed up. And she said, no, it's fine. And, and it was one of those dismissive moments that I, I knew she really hadn't looked at it. And so I sat down next to her. I said, no, sweetheart, look. Half of it, it's smeared. And I remember these words that she said to me. There's nothing wrong with your phone. And I just thought, with, with everything that had been going on, I'm as allergies, I, I'm just going to go to sleep. And I went to sleep that night. And when I woke up, there was this field of electricity, like the static on a television set, only it's pulsating. And, and, and I opened my eyes, and there's no difference. And I'm like, oh, this is a nightmare. I need to wake up from this. And, and, and so I sat up, and I opened up my eyes, and there was no difference. And, and I fumbled to the bathroom, and I flipped the light switch on, and I flipped the light switch off, and, and there's no difference. And so uh, the power must be out, so I go to the next room, and I flip that light on, and I flip that off, and there's no difference. And so I go back, and I say, Jennifer, something's wrong with my eyes. And we go to the ortho, not orthodontist. Whoa, hi, I go to the orthodontist. There's nothing wrong with your eyes. Your teeth, however, are horrible. We go to the eye doctor. I know that's right. I went to the eye doctor. <laughs> and the eye doctor, he's dilating my eyes and poking and prodding, and he's, he's looking in there, and he says, I think this, I've seen three cases of this. Two were in med school 25 years ago, and you're number three. I think this is carotidemia, but you're going to need to talk to an expert. And I'm saying, what about these flashes? When do they go away? And he says, I don't know anything about this. And so my wife and I, we went back home, and, and Jennifer and I just theorized that night, what am I going to do? And we called my principal up, and she said that my teacher's assistants, they, they would do my lesson plans, that they, they would do everything that involves sight, and they really wanted me to be the advisor because I've always been the one to, to help solve those crisis moments and build those kids back up, and they wanted me to be there as an advisor. So I went there, and... and that, that next day, Jennifer took me to school. My assistants brought the students in. And they taught. And the students really didn't realize he's blind. That night, I went home and trying to sleep that night. And these flashes are just pulsing at you. I mean, push on your eyes. And, and that little puff of light that you see, that's what I see all the time. And I'm trying to go to sleep. And it feels claustrophobic. It feels like I'm being smothered by, by this electrical cloud. And I don't know how, but I went to sleep that night. And for several weeks, I, we kept this routine up. She would take me to school. My TAs would, would teach the class, and I would advise. And then a crisis happens. One of the students who was emotionally disturbed ended up throwing the desk. We got the students out, and I'm trying to de-escalate the kid because the mind is still willing. And my TAs, they're just about to come in the room, and there's this sound. And I don't know what that sound is. And the next thing you know, I can tell my teacher's assistants have restrained the child. And, and we, I guide him through these moments, and I bring him back, and, and I restore that stability. I don't know where that comes from, but I'm able to get him back. And so we get the other students back in, and we're doing the paperwork. And they said to me, okay, after he threw the desks over, then he threw the chair at you. And I, what? Yeah, that's when he threw the chair at you, but I caught it midair. Dude, Mr. Miyagi'd it out of nowhere. Boom! And I should be completely impressed. But instead, I'm horrified because... If I can't make the classroom safe for myself, how can I make it safe for my students? I mean, I'm the one that's always caught the chair. I'm the one that's always done that. That was the last day I taught. 
And I went home and we, we had an appointment to go to the specialist. And the specialist saw us and he says, yeah, what you have is cordyremia. This is, this is genetic. Yeah, you're, you're blind. <laughs> Thanks. You know, it was final, that finality. And I went back home and that, that we had just moved into this new house. And the house that we had that felt like a castle kind of became a prison because Jennifer would go off to work and I'm like that Garfield cat right at the window waiting for her to come home. I mean, what else was I going to do? I couldn't, use the, I couldn't use the microwave. It's just flat. And I, I, I couldn't go to the mailbox. That's like 30 feet away. How do you get there? And so we get one of those, those white canes and I'm stabbing at the ground. I don't know what you do with those things. And, and we, we went out into public because when she'd come home, it was my moment to be with Jennifer. And so we would go into public and that's when the disability, the isolation really hit home for me because the waiter or waitress would look at Jennifer and say, what would he like? We would go into public. We'd be walking through a grocery store and I'm stabbing again at the ground and I would hear people talking and then all of a sudden they would be silent and they're staring. And I flash back to when I was a kid and you first see that blind person walking with a cane and you're mesmerized. How do they do it? And the insult to injury was when, when friends would say, I don't know how you're doing it. If I lost my eyesight, I wouldn't want to live. I was there because I wasn't living. I was staying home, waiting for Jennifer to come home. And depression is one of those things where... Anybody drinking tonight? Okay, so some of you have had some drinks where you've had like eight too many. <laughs> you should have stopped a while ago. And, and, and you're, you're, you're at home and you're laying in the bed or maybe you're on the car ride home and gravity is just sucking you deeper into the chair or the bed and you, the whole room is spinning. It feels like you're on a roller coaster and all that blood is just pouring out of you and you, everything hurts to move. And the only thing that you know to do is throw up. That's depression. Only you can't throw up to get rid of it. And so I, I had struggled at home and I didn't really know what to do because what do you do when you're blind? How do you, how do you get better from there? Well, I decided I was going to teach myself how to go back to school and I was going to get a master's in social work. So... I start struggling and I start trying and it becomes more and more difficult and I'm thinking, I'm such a burden on my family. I'm such a burden to Jennifer. I mean, she goes to work and she works hard all day and then she's having to come home and she's having to check the mail and she's having to do all this stuff and how am I helping? I'm just a burden. And I remember just being so frustrated that when I knew she was gone, I just said, this is not the life I wanted. I had so much plans. I, mean, what, I, I, don't, I don't want this for me. And it was in that moment of clarity that I realized that Jennifer was still there. And even though I'm stuck in myself, I can't see, she's still choosing me. She believes in me. And in that moment realizing that she was fighting with me, I remember when she came home and I said, sweetheart, I'm going to be better. I'm going to stop crying. I'm going to do better. And so when we went out into public, I'm, I'm, I'm using my cane and I'm, I'm getting better at it. And when we go to those restaurants and the server w- would turn and say, what would he like? I'd look at him and I'd go, mm. Reckon I'd have them French fried potatoes. <laughs> and we started traveling. We started getting out. And I'm using my cane. And I'm starting to realize that my cane, the whole point of those canes is to hit those obstacles 
and get around them. Get over them. And, and I had to learn that my sense of humor would work. And, and that's how I could deal with some of those people with the cruel things that they would do. We, we were traveling. And, and Jennifer is describing, okay, you're going to walk 10 feet and the guy's room is on the left and then hook a right. And this guy walked right past me, went right up to her. And he was Irish and he goes, would he be needing a disabled toilet? And I said, no, I need one that works. <laughs> Honest to God, true story, okay? This is this, this is risk. I truly said that in that moment. I was so proud of myself. I was like, yes, I got him. <laughs> and I started fighting. And I started to use my cane. And I don't know what happens. 2013, two years after I lost my sight, I'm still working through that master's degree. And I don't know. I didn't have the blind guy guidebook on what to do. But it just occurred to me to get a dog. And so I applied to this guide dog school. And they said, We're going to match you up with a dog that would fit you. And they called one day and they said, we have found the dog to match your personality. And I'm thinking, the dog's going to be high maintenance, socially awkward, and obsessed with my wife's boobies? That's going to be weird. Definitely awkward. And so they told me I had to put up my cane that I was going to rely on the dog. When you're using a cane, it's your own momentum. It's your speed. And you get to hit whatever it is and then get around it. But a dog's not like that. Using a cane, if it's like riding a bike, then having a dog, it's like flying an airplane. Totally different. Sure, it's still mobility, but they're not the same. And so they... (laughs) Jennifer and I were on FaceTime, and they brought Perry into me. He, she's like, he's beautiful. I'm like, oh, he's just saying that. But it turns out he really is beautiful. And, and they let me know that he's intense. He's actually really fiercely determined, and he walks super fast. Okay. So I'm hanging on to him, and they're, and they're like, you need to talk to him. And, and, and the only thing I knew to say is, it's okay. It's okay. You're all right. It's okay. You're all right. <laughs> And, we, and he would, he's a flower sniffer. This is totally weird. We're just walking, and if there's a flower, boom, he's on the flower. Okay? They're like, he's not supposed to do that. I'm like, okay, but you know, it's all right. So we're training together, and I had to go up to Michigan to get him. And so my wife set me on the airplane to go there, and it was one of those amazing moments to be able to come back and to not have the cane and to have him guide me to her and he and I went from where I had that castle kind of prison to where he's holding me accountable and in my neighborhood we're walking every day for about an hour and he's trying to check things out and there's obstacles and there's loose dogs and there's blocked driveways and he doesn't know exactly what to do he's trying to figure out how to read me And so, again, I'm trying to do that enthusiastic and reassure him. And I'm saying, it's okay, it's okay. And there would be a dog barking off right there. And he's, he's, he's noticing and he's, he's jiggling in the harness and he's, he's wanting to go over there. He's wanting to say hello to them. And I'm saying, it's okay, it's all right. And he'd refocus. And when you refocus, I'd say, you're doing good. And he, he would kind of settle down. It's been five years to the month since I lost my sight. And the path that I I was on for 38 years, I couldn't see it anymore. The plans I had were gone. And the flashes are still here with me. And even though they stole my sight, Jennifer is still with me. And the path is different. And I'm not a teacher anymore. And I'm a social worker. And I have a companion with me now. For this lifelong trip that I have, it's one of those moments that when I'm working and doing the social work, we come home at the end of the night. And I put on my running shoes. And I put on his harness and we go for a walk. And it's that amazing moment where we're walking at night and it's just him and I and it's quiet 
and the mist is starting to just hit me a little bit and I hear my footprints and I hear him breathing and I say it a lot and I realize that when I say it's okay it's alright you're doing good it's because I need to hear those words thank you How do you know you exist? Well, of course I exist. But how do you know you exist? It is intuitively obvious. Intuition is no proof. What concrete evidence do you have that you exist? Well, I think, therefore, I am. That's good. That's very good. But how do you know that anything else exists? My sensory apparatus reveals it to me. Ah, right. The only experience that is directly available to you is your sensory data. And this sensory data is merely a stream of electrical impulses that stimulates your computing center. In other words, all that I really know about the outside world is relayed to me through my electrical connections. Exactly. Why, that would mean that I really don't know what the outside universe is like at all for certain. I must think on this further. I first met him about uh, 1968, when I was about uh, nine years old. I was in the third grade in Richmond, Virginia, in a part of town that was called Church Hill, which was basically a dilapidated black ghetto, where even the worst parents would warn their kids about encounters with the police, stray dogs, getting hit by cars, picking up discarded condoms, and use needles off the street. It was the kind of place that was repped with crime. Well, he owned a small candy store, and we called him Candy. The store consisted of basically two small rooms, a tiny little bathroom, potbelly stove. There was a glass countertop, and underneath that countertop, he kept an assortment of cheap penny candy. And on the top of that glass countertop, there were assortment of jars, three jars that were usually half or a third full with often stale cookies. And you could bet that whenever it was raining outside or it was cold outside or whenever we didn't have a day going to school, that that candy store would be packed full of kids. Kids whose parents were working too hard to be engaged or kids whose parents didn't give a damn to be engaged. I mean, the sickly kids, the hungry kids, the weird kids, the odd kids, the misunderstood kids, kids like myself. Now, Candy, he had this special group of kids, special kids he would call us, where he would get us together and he would talk to us about things that adults normally wouldn't talk about. And Candy, he didn't talk to us like uh, regular adults. He talked to us in a way that kids could understand. He asked us questions like, what's your favorite color? What's the best cartoon? What do you want to do when you grow up? Who's your favorite teacher? What's your fantasy? That's the kind of guy he was. And he taught us things about the human body, too. Like, there was a difference between what boys and girls got between their legs. We would have peeing contests out back to see who could pee the furthest. One time, Candy told us that if you take your little penises and put them inside of a Coke bottle and move that bottle back and forth, shame on you. The, the, bo the bottle might get stuck. Well, well, one of my friends, Tim, he tried it and it did get stuck. 
And he cried and we laughed and it created such a commotion that Candy decided that we needed to have a little meeting. So he got his special kids together and he said, listen, uh, you can't be telling people about our stuff. Remember what I said before that grown-ups, they don't understand. They don't want you to learn things. I said, well, it was funny, but okay, because Candy understands things. Because when the kids were teasing me one day because I had worn some torn pants to school, it was Candy who said, hey, you leave him alone. You come over here and apologize right now. And they did. And Candy sat me on his lap. And he told me what a good boy I was and how special I was and that all my dreams were going to come true. Because that's the kind of good guy that he was. I remember that Candy used to like to play hide-and-seek with his kids a lot. And one day I went up to the store and the door was not locked, but there was a sign on the door to say closed. But that didn't really mean anything with Candy. So I went inside the store and I opened the door to the tiny little bathroom. And inside I saw Candy and one of the boys sitting on the toilet at the same time with their pants down. And I was thinking to myself... What a genius. Only Candy could think about how efficient it is for two people to use a toilet at the same time. <laughs> this is the only way to explain what I was seeing. Because as soon as I pulled the door open, Candy stood up and pushed the boy down. And he went, yay, you found me. You get the extra candy. That's the kind of good guy he was. Now, there never were a lot of adults or other teenagers going inside the store ever, with one exception. Occasionally, these older teenage boys, would be just one, would come in the store and hang out. And Candy always identified the boy as his son. But they seemed to change faces all the time. Didn't look anything like Candy. In fact, the only thing that they had in common with him was their love of playing with kids like he did. Candy would squeeze you and spin you around and slip his finger down the crack of your bottom and say, you like that, don't you? And we would say, yeah. It was so funny. It felt awkward. It was weird. But why not? I mean, it was candy. I remember how stunned and shocked I was when uh, one day this man rushed into the store and he was cussing and yelling and he was dragging this boy by the arm, one of the regular boys who came in the store and the boy was screaming daddy no, daddy no, Candy didn't do nothing and the guy started screaming and cussing at Candy he said you faggot, what did you do to my son? What did you say to my son? And he punched Candy in his face and all of us kids started to cry some kids went no some kids went stop the boy kept saying no daddy no the man punched him and stumped him. He threw Candy on the floor. He kicked him again. He rolled him over on his stomach. He pressed his face into the hard wood floor and started rubbing it back and forth. When he pulled his head up, you could see what looked to be a thousand splinters that was all inside his eyelids, under his nose and his lips. Candy had blood coming out of every hole in his head and he moaned and the man dropped his head to the floor. All of us kids screamed and we scattered and we got out of the store at once. Well, a couple of weeks passed and the store hadn't reopened. And when it finally did, once again, Candy found it necessary to have a little meeting with us kids, us special kids. And he called us together and he said, you know, sometimes kids lie. And sometimes adults don't understand about stuff. And I said, Candy, what do you mean stuff? What stuff? He said, you know, our stuff. Well, I didn't want to look stupid and ask him to explain what stuff meant. But I did ask my mama. And I did ask my school teacher. And the funny thing is, it was just like Candy told us. Adults don't want you to know nothing because my mama and the school teacher both responded the same way. They were very quiet. Almost in a whisper, they asked me, what did he do with his hands? What did you do? What did he say? And most importantly, 
Did you tell anybody? Well, listen, you don't need to be telling people about stuff. And eventually my mama just said, look, don't go over there anymore. You don't need to be going over there. Talking to some of the other kids, I found out that uh, their parents had told them basically the same thing. But how were they going to stop us from going over there? We weren't going to tell them. We weren't going to let them know. We liked hanging out with Candy. He was just that kind of guy. Well, a few months after that, it seems that he had got robbed and beaten up savagely by some guys. So badly, in fact, that he had lost some of his hearing and some of his vision, and he was completely disabled, and he wasn't able to keep the store open. And eventually, the store became abandoned. It got boarded up. In the years that passed, and I had the opportunity as a teenager to walk back and forth past that store with some of the other kids in the neighborhood, invariably, when we walked by, somebody would say, Candy. And people would respond with, hmm, damn, shit, bastard. Some people said nothing. And every once in a while, somebody might walk quickly and even cry. But we never, we never asked why. My senior year in high school, I had the opportunity to uh, get involved with something in the drama club had going on where they were going to various uh, retirement homes to put on a Christmas program where they were singing Christmas carols to some senior citizens. So I volunteered, uh, mostly with the desire in mind to uh, get out of going to class. But hey, it was a gig. <laughs> One of the performances that we had, I noticed that they had a lot of elementary school kids were there, probably to add to the uh, festive atmosphere of the place. And I noticed that a bunch of the kids were surrounding this one old guy, and they were jumping up and down and squealing and looking like they were having a good time. And I more, I looked at the guy, I knew he looked familiar. But it didn't take much longer for me to realize that that was candy. Now maybe only seven or eight years had passed, but he looked like he was 100 years old. But he still had the same charisma, that same dynamic. As I could see all those kids surrounding him and the way they were jumping up and down and squealing, I mean, they couldn't help themselves. And in that moment, I could feel and I could see what those kids were feeling. He was so wonderful, he was so kind, he was so trustworthy. He was lovable, uh, revered for his age, probably misunderstood, tolerated. It was like looking at one of those uh, portraits that's made up of a bunch of tiny little pictures. And the further you move back away from it, you see one big portrait. Well, as I move back away from this scene, the portrait I saw was of a goddamn child molester. It's so noisy at the fair 
But all your friends are there And the candy floss you had And your mother and your dad Oh, to live on Sugar Mountain With the Barkers and the Cutter Balloons You can't be twenty on Sugar Mountain Though you're thinking that you're leaving there too soon You're leaving there too soon This is Risk. This singer certainly needs no introduction, except, as always, for Risk's producer, JC. Uh, So, JC, this is Neil Young (laughs) behind me now. (laughs) And we just heard from another legend, (laughs) at least in in the world of Risk, Mr. Ray Christian, one of our favorites, Ray, if you want to find him, he's on Facebook at What's Ray Saying? And I have heard through the grapevine that he has a podcast of his own coming soon. So look forward to that. Our last story today comes from another good friend and wonderful storyteller, Gail Thomas. You can find Gail at gail-thomas.com. Here she is now at the Risk Live show that we recently did in Austin, Texas, with a story we call Now or Never. It's August 2009, a week after my hysterectomy. Hysterectomy. I never thought I'd say that word. My sex organs are gone. We didn't really get to say goodbye. I mean, I didn't plan on having kids, but I I don't know, maybe the ovaries sort of balanced something else out or something, you know? I notice when I look in the mirror that my ass looks smaller. I can't really walk that well, so, and I can't bike, so I take a cab to my post-op appointment. This is when my young, good-looking surgeon will tell me, will shake my hand and tell me, we got all the cancer. In his stark office, he's wearing these slacks and this starch shirt and a tie, and he looks more like a teacher's assistant than an oncology surgeon. No handshake. Instead, Dr. Hott motions me into his office, tells me to sit, closes his office door, and goes to stand behind his desk. I wish he would just smile or sit next to me. I feel like a student that just failed a big exam and I'm about ready to get punished. He starts to pace. Mrs. Thomas, it's serious. The cancer has spread from your uterus to your ovaries. I'm not sure if I got it all. I don't want to give you false hope. Why does anyone give me hope? I like hope. Hope is good. (laughs) I'll take hope. (laughs) Mrs. Thomas, If you don't do exactly what I say, you have a 50-50 chance of being alive in five years. It's stage three endometrial cancer. I wish he'd stop calling me Mrs. Thomas. I mean, this guy just took my uterus, my ovaries, and my fallopian tubes out of my vagina. I think we can be on a first name basis. (laughs) He continues. You must begin six weeks of radiation, five days a week, followed by six months of chemotherapy starting immediately. Whoa. (laughs) 
he continues with more numbers, but I don't really hear anything. All I hear is six weeks of radiation daily, followed by six months of chemotherapy. And he just continues, but all I can hear is six weeks of radiation daily, followed by six months of chemotherapy starting immediately. Inside, I'm screaming in my head. It's like, no, it's not that bad. It's, it's, it, 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 that's not necessary. Stop pacing. He calls it protocol, standard treatment. It sounds like a threat. I'm just a number to him. Now, I, I can barely walk. And research says that you should heal from surgery before you begin radiation. And I, you know, I don't have a medical degree, but I do have a law degree, and I still hate confrontation, but I'm really good at research. <laughs> and research also says that what is standard treatment one year is over-treatment the next year. I had watched a friend of mine get frail as, as she declined from years of treatment. And the New York Times every year has these articles about this sort of thing. I, I, what if she'd still be here? I have other reasons to be concerned about this Dr. Hot Cold, I call him. <laughs> One, I have a fever that is so strong I can't sleep at night. I also have so much drainage coming out of my body that I'm wearing adult diapers, and when I walk the dog, I can't make it half a block without changing. What are the statistics on that? Plus, I woke up during surgery, and I heard him scream, she's not supposed to look like that. She shouldn't be that bloated. He doesn't even want to talk about side effects. You know, I, 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 doesn't he know that there's more to my life than just living? What about my bike? Can I ride my bike? Because my life is nothing if I can't ride my bike. And my other organs, I should be looking out for my other organs. I mean, how would the bladder feel about this? And the, what does it do to the heart? You know, I, I need to know these things. I walk out of there in such a daze. It's, it's, I go exit through his waiting room, and I notice that there's vinyl chairs and, and no couches, and the coffee tables look like they came from some sort of garage sale. I never noticed how shabby this place was before. <laughs> Is this doctor my only hope? Did I just choose him because he's good looking? I've made that mistake before. <laughs> I don't have time to cry. I have to give myself a medical degree overnight. My family and friends are asking me all these questions that I don't know the answers to. I don't know. I've never had cancer before. I wasn't that good in biology. Dr. Google is equally scary. Side effects include, let's see, cancer, neuropathy, lymphedema, fatigue, nausea, vomiting, infection, uncontrollable flapping lip movements. That's from the nausea medicine. And sex. No sex. <laughs> Apparently, radiation just, like, scars everything and tightens it all, like the whole vagina gets all tightened up. And not in a good way. <laughs> in a very painful sex way. In a never have sex again kind of sex way. I mean, I am single. I was just getting my stride on. I'm starting to figure out this thing. Am I really ready to give up sex? I, it's, it's life or sex. <sighs> you know, and, and I'm scared. What if he's right? So I agree. I meet the radiation oncologist. And he's... He's an Indian gentleman, he's, in his, his, uh, he's middle-aged, and he's got this nice little sort of gray bit in his beard. He walks slower, I'll call him Dr. Slow. He's holding my chart, and he looks at my chart, and he looks at me, and he looks at my chart, and he looks at me, as if he's trying to decide between the two of us. <laughs> and then he sits, and he's about six feet away from me, but it feels like he's holding my hand. And he says, you know, there's a chance that you don't have to do any treatment. There's a chance that you have two early stage cancers, two primaries, one on the surface of the uterus and one on the surface of the ovaries. And if that's the case, their surgery was enough. They don't have to do anything else. <laughs> okay, wait a minute. 
So I'm thinking, this means that instead of me having this big, bad, giant, like, farther along big cancer thing that might be in remission but might not, I might have just had two little baby cancers that are now gone from the surgery. Is that right? That's right. Oh my gosh, now this is real hope. I go home and now research is exhilarating. I'm up till like 3 a.m. most nights. This is fantastic. I've never had a job this important before. I'm really actually having a good time now. And I do more research. I talk to my yoga teacher and he says, okay, eat a raw onion every day. You won't have friends, but you won't get cancer. My Dominican handyman stops by with an Alvira plant. And my brother is like Rambo, do it all, do it all, do it all! He's an MBA, so he knows. I think my family is just worried that I'm this de depressed, suicidal yoga student. I am depressed. I, this is scary stuff. So I agree to radiation. But first I have to go to what they call a radiation simulation appointment. This is when they get you, where you get you ready for the real thing. That treatment room is in the basement of the hospital. The same vinyl chairs, the same garage sale furniture. And I go into the treatment room, and it's, it's pretty good size. It's, you know, like about half the size of the stage. But there's boxes everywhere, and it's dusty. There's a radiation room, but it looks like it doubles as a storage closet. I lay down on this long table and the nurses measure my hips to make sure with this mold that I'm going to sit in to make sure that the radiation goes to the same place 30 times. And then they do this other thing, zit, zit, zit. It's three pen-sized tattoos to make sure that the radiation goes to the same place 30 times. It doesn't feel right. I go home, wait a couple days. It doesn't feel right. So the morning that I'm supposed to start radiation, I call the office and I say, I'm not coming. And I do more research. I get more pathology reports. I get three more pathology reports. And one of the pathology reports from a very prestigious hospital says to primary cancers, early stage, no treatment necessary. Just like Dr. Slow said, God love the radiation oncologist that doesn't want to give me radiation. I'm so excited. So I call Dr. Hot Cold on the phone and I tell him, and he says, six weeks of radiation daily, followed by six months of chemotherapy. He won't listen. His way is the only way. And then he goes on vacation, and I cheat on him. And I start meeting with doctors all over New York City. They tell me the same thing. that the, They say that anything's possible. It could be either one of these diagnoses. They don't know. They, they're not sure. We're never going to know. My friend Joe asks me, why are you still with Dr. Hot Cold? So I break up with him <coughs> on email. I told you, I'm, I don't like confrontation. <laughs> By now, I have found Dr. Kind. And he's... In his 50s, he's got this sort of very short, sort of thin, white, curly hair. And he nods, and he makes eye contact, and he calls me by my first name, Gail. <laughs> and he listens, and he smiles, and he nods when I tell him about my fears and frustrations. And he doesn't laugh at me when I say, what's the least amount of treatment I can do without seeming suicidal? He meets with the hospital treatment board, and they talk about me, not a statistic. They talk about me and what is right for me, who I am, and they come back and they say, no radiation necessary. And then he tells me that there's a study in Italy that says that three rounds of chemotherapy is enough, so that's half of before. We compromise. I didn't do any radiation. I did a little chemo. And you know those little pen-sized tattoos I mentioned? They're permanent. And I see them sometimes when I'm getting dressed in the morning. And when I do, I don't see that scary radiation room or condescending Dr. Hot Cold. I see Gail standing up to Goliath, 
Finding allies I can trust, like Dr. Kind and Dr. Slow. That was six years ago. I'm cancer-free. I have no side effects. I rode my bike here. And last week, it just so happens that I actually saw Dr. Kind for my, my regular, you know, yearly hello. And I told him about you guys, and I told him about this story. And as he was leaving the office, he turned back to me and he said, I don't share this with patients, but I'm a cancer survivor. And if I hadn't gotten a second opinion, I wouldn't be alive today. Trust your instincts. Stand up for yourself. Walk away from bullies, even if you have to do it by email. <laughs> Thank you. That is all for this week's episode, folks. And now I will tell you a ton of places that Risk is coming live in 2016. First, there's February 24th at the Bell House in Brooklyn. Huge show. Be there. Then on February 25th, we're at the Nerdist Showroom in Los Angeles on March 10th. We are in Chicago, Illinois. That's going to be a fantastic show at the Concord Music Hall. March 26th, we're in Washington, D.C. And you know what? We're still taking pitches for that one. The theme is powerless. The pitch deadline is February 27th. <laughs> On April 27th, we are in Vancouver. Our first time ever in Vancouver at the Biltmore. The pitch deadline is March 30th. And the theme is overwhelmed. <laughs> On April 28th, we are in Seattle, Washington at the Vera Project again. The theme is Enraged. The pitch deadline for Seattle is March 31st. Then on April 30th, we are in Portland, Oregon. The theme is Despair. The pitch deadline is April 2nd. <laughs> We're still nailing down a, a May date for Boston, but May 21st, we are definitely in Minneapolis again. It is repugnant. Repugnant is <laughs> the theme of the show that night, and uh, I don't have a pitch deadline here on the thing, so just start pitching us for that. Finally, on June 25th, we're in St. Louis, Missouri. The theme is worried. Again, I don't know what the pitch deadline is. Uh, but St. Louis, start pitching us your worried stories for our June 25th show. You can find out more on the submissions page at risk-show.com. I've said it before and I'll say it again. If you love the show, share it. Share it with your friends. Share it with your family. Send links to specific episodes via Facebook or Twitter. Those are the listen pages at risk-show.com. Comment on the show, on our site, and on social media. You might have to warn people the host is a little insane. Some of the ads are songs that are batshit crazy. But, hey, there is only one place you can so consistently find stories this bold. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk.
We're going to make it through this day. Because we still had six hours to go. So I, I had to kind of put Humpty Dumpty back on the wall. And... <clears throat> They said I was going to have one of those moments when you forget. There's one of those moments when you forget. Let me look at my notes. 